the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Service, and the ACLU of New Hampshire hosted the first in a new series titled Civil Liberties and the Presidency, which featured Democratic presidential candidate John Delaney, former congressman from Maryland's 6th Congressional District. This is the audio from that event. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the guest or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Congressman, it's so nice nice to to meet you. you. We're happy to have you. And, um, you know, I guess I like to say that a law school's place really is in the community. And, um, you know, we are delighted to partner with the ACLU on this particular series that focuses on presidential candidates and civil liberties. Um, When you think about civil liberties, the freedom of expression and religion and assembly, those are some of the most important principles that we have in our constitution. And the Rudman Center really works hard um, to put those forward to our students and engage them in, um, in activities that support public service and justice and leadership. Um, and as part of this, I understand, Congressman, that you were the first presidential candidate to announce I your was. candidacy. I was joking so- with the audience that I, for a while, had cleared the field, but that didn't last. <laughs> well, it's just a little healthy competition. Indeed. So Helps good. frame the issues. That's right. That's right. And I also heard that, so you were in politics at eggs yesterday. So I was. You were introduced to our- And I signed a bunch of eggs. Did you? That's, that's what you do there. Yeah. You're going to go home and your family's going to think you're really weird. You're I'm going to like, can I show you how well I can sign an egg? Because yeah. <laughs> the first 10 doesn't go so well. Right. But then you actually get Get your technique down. <laughs> do, you, do you strive for sort of the wide part at the bottom? Is the no, I kind of do a, I, I learned you do a very small, compact, but hard signature right in the middle. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like it. Um, I, I keep going to these and collecting eggs, but never waiting around to get them signed. So I have these, all of these blank eggs sitting in, in um, my office. Um, you know, one of the things I think you talked about there was healthcare reform. And mm. as I understand that, that as part of the businesses that you have created over time, that they've been involved in the healthcare field. And so you have some experience there and, and also in, um, you know, contributing back to the community and, and loans for economically challenged communities and things like that. One of the things I think is so perfect about having Congressman Delaney here is that, um, you know, he describes himself as a, was it pragmatic? Pr- pragmatic pra- idealist. Pra- a pragmatic idealist. And um, and I think an article in the newspaper from, um, from one of his visits here talked about how centrism is not, is not a dirty word. And if I could think of one other person that could have ed- called themselves the same thing and, um, and, and uttered the same words, it would be Warren Rudman. Um, Senator Rudman truly um, was able to work across the aisle, ironically, sort of, you know, as a Republican. I, I think that there are some similarities there. And so the Rudman Center and the University of New Hampshire School of Law is particularly thrilled to welcome you here tonight. And we, our welcome, I think, to you is as warm as it is cold outside. So thank you. That's very generous. Uh, we, we put out the winter winter wonderland just for you. So well, thank you. Thank you for being here thank this you. evening. Thank you very much, Dean. I don't know if I use that or can you all hear? I think I'm mic'd up. Can you all hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Well, so Dean, I want to thank you. Um, and I always love being in a law school because the best thing that ever happened to me in my life 
happened in a law school, and that's where I met my wife. We met at Georgetown Law Center, where, do we have a Georgetown person here? Yes. Uh, law school? Law school. So, um, yeah, so my wife and I met at Georgetown Law School. It's always been very close. My wife just stepped down as the chair of the board of Georgetown Law School. And we helped set up the public, we, we established the Public Interest Law Institute at Georgetown. Because uh, it's, uh, my view is if you unleash great public interest lawyers, the multiplier effect that they have on society is really profound. And so <clears throat> I always feel somewhat at home in a law center because being around a law center has always been, uh, it turned out pretty well for me. So, so I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to talk about the topics that really are so important to you and that, that I applaud you for dedicating a portion of your life to ensuring that we have the freedoms and the liberty that we enjoy as Americans. Because it is certainly something worth fighting for uh, every day of our lives. And to some extent, the ACLU is on the front lines of that fight every day. So I'm really grateful to be here. Uh, I, I probably won't touch on, I wanna just introduce myself a little bit and tell you why I'm running for president. Because I think that's really the most important people should ask, why are you doing this? And so I'll try to address that. I won't, I won't touch on the issues that matter so much to you, because I'd rather save time and get questions, because you'll probably ask more specific questions than having me glossing over where I stand on a variety of issues. But let me start with an introduction. So I'm from New Jersey originally. I grew up in a blue collar family. My dad was an electrician and neither of my parents went to college. But fortunately, my dad was in a union. He was a member of something called the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, which is a great union and was great to us. It created a good family for us. You know, it gave us health care. He got paid enough to support our family. When I went off to college at Columbia University, that union actually paid for half of my tuition. And I would never have been able to go to that school but for that union. So it's always a reminder to me that none of us achieve things in life alone, but for a bunch of electricians reaching into their pocket every week to toss some money in a scholarship fund, I wouldn't have gotten a great education, which profoundly changed my life. Then I went to Georgetown for law school, where I met my wife, as I said, and we stayed in the Washington area, and we raised our family. I have four daughters, 26, 22, 18, and 11, and my 26-year-old just got engaged. We're very excited about that. Gonna have a wedding in 2019, because I don't have enough going on in 2019, so we throw a wedding in there. So, um, and my wife, let me tell you a little about her, April McLean Delaney. She is a, an attorney, as I said, just stepped down as chair of the Georgetown Law Board. She specializes um, in uh, issues affecting children, and she helped found a nonprofit called Common Sense Media. Some of you may have heard of Common Sense Media. It's a good size organization at this point, and it focuses on media literacy in children, uh, and that's evolved to be technology in children, particularly privacy, which is an issue that's very important to you all here. They and she were instrumental in passing the, the landmark privacy legislation that exists in California now, which is something that, that I think we should have nationally uh, in this country. So we'll touch on maybe that later when we talk about privacy, because I know that's important to you. But she's had an amazing career, and she's amazing, uh, and she's been an advocate for, on these issues for a long time. So after law school, I practiced law briefly, realized I probably wouldn't be a great lawyer, and I decided to be an entrepreneur. I started my first business about a year after law school. Uh, it was in the healthcare business. It was successful, I took it public. I was the youngest CEO in the history of the New York Stock Exchange when I was 33 back in 1996. And I ran that company, sold it. My wife and I became involved in philanthropy, community service. 
I still had an entrepreneurial itch, so I started another business. I took that public and I ran it. But about 10 years ago, we made kind of a family decision to dedicate the rest of our lives to public service. We felt like we'd been very blessed and that we had something to really give back. April had been doing it already, and, but it led me to the decision to run for public office. And so I ran for Congress for the first time in 2012, and I won. I flipped a seat that had been held by a Republican for about 20 years to a Democratic seat, and it's Maryland's 6th Congressional District, which starts right out, outside of Washington, D.C., so I have the Washington suburbs, but it goes all the way to Western Maryland. Maryland has a panhandle that kind of goes into West Virginia. And so it's a very, uh, I call it America in miniature because I have some of the most rural conservative counties in the country, literally. And then I have the Washington suburbs, which tend to be very progressive and very liberal. And so I've had the privilege of representing that district for six years. So I've served three terms in the Congress. And I focused on a lot of issues, uh, many of which focus on economic development because of my background. I've done a lot in foreign policy. But I've always been very bipartisan. I was consistently ranked the third most bipartisan member of Congress. And I think that's important. Because I think if you look back at all the great enduring things this country has ever done, they've all been done when we've had a large coalition of people who get behind it. And so if we want to make progress, that's what we got to do. I elected not to run for re-election to dedicate myself fully to running for president. Because A, I don't think I could actually be here. I've, this is my 14th trip to New Hampshire. I've done 23 to Iowa, right? We've got 50 people on the campaign, on the ground, all over the place. I don't think I could do this and actually serve my constituents. So I think you have to be all in on this stuff. And I felt like if I really want to do this, then I got to take that step, which we did. And, uh, but, and the reason I did that is because I think it, this is really important, what we have going on in this country right now. I think we're at the threshold of a defining time in our nation's history where we have to ask ourselves some really important questions. Who are we as a people? What do we stand for? What are our values? What are our commitments to each other as citizens? And most importantly, what future do we want? Because I think the future we're headed towards, we don't want. It's a future where the economic trends that we've seen over the last several decades, which I would define as effectively this country being sorted out between winners and those left behind, largely driven by globalization and technological innovation, forces that have completely reorganized our economy, and we haven't done anything about it. Those trends are continuing. We're leaving our children debts, my children, your children, your grandchildren maybe, we're leaving them debts they absolutely cannot repay. Both a fiscal debt, which hit, hit a record, it was announced today, $22 trillion, and a deficit of almost a trillion, and a climate debt, because climate change is really a debt. It's an obligation that you leave to the next generation because you won't do the responsible things. And I think it's immoral, these debts that we're leaving our kids. And we're also kind of creating a society where I fear that every political disagreement will be met with almost violent protest because we're so deeply divided as a nation. And we almost have no ability to engage in any kind of respectful civil debate about our society. But I think we've got an entirely different future available to us. But the key is we have to start building it. We have to start getting things done. We have to start kind of doing what we used to do as a country, which was to have kind of a moral aspiration for the future we could build together as Americans. And I want to be the president that does that. I want to be the president that solves problems. We've got a lot of issues. We've got issues with health care, pharmaceutical drug prices, 
Economic development is not nearly as spread out as it should. We haven't invested in our infrastructure. We're not dealing with climate change. We have no privacy on our online world. These are real issues that, are, that the American people are dealing with. 25% of the kids wake up 10 times a night to check their social media, literally. 25% of teenagers wake up, 25, uh, wake up 10 times a night to check their social media. Right, these are real issues that need solutions. And in all of these issues, there are good-minded Democrats and Republicans who have actually worked together and found common ground. But we haven't had a president, we certainly don't have a president now, and we haven't had congressional leadership in a long time that actually wants to solve problems. I wanna be the president that solves these problems. I wanna be a president who actually focuses on the future, understands where the world is going, understands the effects that technology, which is the most powerful force in the world, are having on every aspect of our society. You know, in 2030, the projections are that 50 million jobs in this country, 50 million, will be displaced or fundamentally changed based on artificial intelligence and automation. We have no strategy for dealing with that. We haven't updated our safety net to deal with that. We haven't updated our public education to prepare people for that. We haven't updated ongoing job training. We haven't done anything to prepare our country for that. It's affecting our national security. It's obviously affecting our environment. It's affecting our privacy. All these machines are gonna get programmed right now and potentially biases that exist right now in our society could bet, get programmed into some of the machines that are gonna make all the decisions in the world. These are real issues and we can solve these issues. But the key is we have to solve it together. I believe the central question facing this country is how do we take this terribly divided nation where American is pitted against American. And the American people have been told that your enemy is your fellow American. And I'm not gonna say a lot about the president, but I do think he is the divider in chief. I do think he wakes up every day and thinks about how to divide our country. We need the opposite of that. We need to bring this country together, restore a sense of common purpose, which doesn't mean we agree with each other on everything. We don't wanna live in a country where we agree with each other on everything. We wanna live in a country where we can have the battle of ideas and it can be civil and respectful, but we also come together and solve problems. So if any of you ever decide to run for president, you'll get about 50 calls within 24 hours. And what those calls will be is people saying, when is your book coming out? So I wrote a book. I think we have copies of it for, don't, yeah, we got, there we are. So the title of the book is called The Right Answer. And it comes from a speech that John F. Kennedy gave in 1958. He was a senator at the time, and he gave the speech in Baltimore. So it was a Maryland speech, and I discovered it. And in that speech, he had some beautiful lines. He said, we should not seek the Republican answer. We should not seek the Democratic answer. We should seek the right answer. We shouldn't seek to refight the battles of the past. We should own our responsibility as Americans for the future. And he gave that speech four weeks after Sputnik was launched. And if you read the history books, you'll know that the American people were terrified of that event. They were scared they had lost their future. But leaders like John Kennedy stepped forward, and others, and they reminded us that the future is, the future is ours to build, but we have to build it together as Americans. And that's where we are. And that's why I'm running for president, to bring this country together, which is why I don't think being a centrist is a dirty word, to solve problems and to restore a sense of moral aspiration for who we are as a people and the kind of future we want for our kids.
and I believe I'm the right person to do it. And I believe deep down every American knows this is what we need to do. They know it in their heart. We just need to step forward and get behind it. So I'm not gonna talk anymore other than answer your questions. Again, I specifically didn't touch on, I know a lot of issues you all care about because I figured I'd get it from questions. But that's who I am and that's why I'm running for president. Thank you. Thank you, Congressman, for I opening remarks. I snuck in. Yeah. Um, I have questions from the audience, so I'm here for the important part. Um, I just want to note at the top, um, I'm with the ACLU, and this uh, Civil Liberty Series is part of our ACLU Voter 2020 campaign, which is focused on making civil liberties a prominent part of the presidential primary. So I'm going to take the liberty of asking. I should have a debate, like a national debate. If we can find a stage big enough for the candidates, um, I'm going to start with an opening question, yes. which is there are dozens and dozens of topics uh, floating around in terms of the presidential primary. And we would like to know from you where you think civil liberties belong in that presidential conversation. Well, well, I consider civil liberties kind of a foundational issue. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Mm -hmm. Right. So to some extent, there's certain fundamental foundational values in this country, freedom, liberty, freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, et cetera, that everything is built upon. That's how I think about it. So whether we're talking about healthcare, infrastructure, jobs, et cetera, it's all built around a foundation of freedom. And so I think civil liberties lies right in that foundation. I like the answer. So we're going to start, we have a combination of questions from the audience and written questions. So we're going to start with a topic that you actually raised in your speech, which is privacy. Yes. So the question is, what would you do to combat the continued privacy threats posed by companies like Facebook, Amazon, and MyAncestry.com? These things. Well, so I believe the legislation that was passed in California that as I said, my wife was, I'm a little biased here because my wife was actually instrumental in it. I think that's the right answer for the, I try to use this term right answer all the time because title of my book, I probably <laughs> I think that's the right answer for our country, right? Right now we've allowed these technology companies basically to act like monopolies. They have huge monopoly power. And listen, I love innovation, right? I think it's extraordinary and it improves the condition of humankind. I don't want to be a Luddite. I don't want to be anti-innovation. But I believe we as citizens have certain rights and, and one of those rights is to have some control over our personal data. So I favor the California framework, which effectively allows opt-ins and all kinds of controls and protections on, and notification and transparency about what they can do with the data, how long they can keep it, et cetera. And I believe that should be the federal law of the United States of America. So we have legislation kind of on that locally here in New Good. Hampshire this session. And here's the question. Would you support a policy where before a company like Amazon could share your data, they would have to get your explicit consent? Well, I believe that's what the California law does. So yes. Excellent. Questions from the audience. Citizen yeah. calls himself a citizen. He was brought here when he was 12. And um, when DACA passed, he was like three months, six months too old for that. Right, he just so, missed it. Yeah, and but meanwhile, he's been in this country since he's 12. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner. He, sure. Know, and there are, that's just one, and I'm sure there's zillions of examples like that. So if you could speak to what you would do to solve that problem of productive people that are here, um, 
and don't have a pass. So, so one, of the, one of the ways I want to bring the country together is in my first 100 days have a list of my priorities. Right, first 100 days sets the tone for a president. In my first 100 days, I'm going to have a list of existing legislation that exists in the Congress of the United States that Democrats and Republicans support to show the American people, when I say to them, I represent every one of you, whether you voted for me or not, and to prove that this is what I'm going to do in my first 100 days. On that list is comprehensive immigration reform, almost precisely the way it was proposed in 2013, which was the bipartisan deal that passed the U.S. Senate with significant Republican support. Would have passed the House of Representatives, but it never got a vote. I was in the Congress at the time, and it was a tragedy. And President Obama would have signed it into law. And what that bill did is created a pathway to citizenship for the anywhere from 11 to 13 million undocumented residents in our country. So they would have had legal status while they waited the 13 years to get citizenship. That would cover the dreamers, which is terrible what this president did to the dreamers and the DACA recipients. But it would also cover this gentleman and everyone else because it's an acknowledgement you know, provided they haven't committed a crime or something like that, it's an acknowledgement that they're an incredibly important part of the fabric of our society and who we are as a people. And that's what I would do. But I would do a few more things. I think we have to do some things around asylum and refugees. So about a month ago, <clears throat> my wife and I went to the border to a uh, detention facility in Dilly, Texas, which is the largest detention facility in the United States of America. They had 1,700 women and children in the facility. It's two hours from San Antonio. So when people cross the border seeking asylum, they're sent to this facility. And we, the reason we went there is we took 14 Georgetown law students and two law professors there for a week to, to help these asylum seekers process their asylum applications. And when you sit and you listen to the story of these women, what they're fleeing from Central America, first of all, every single person in this room would leave too. You realize why we have asylum, and you also realize why we should be doing things to support these three Central American countries in particular. So I would do that bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill, and I'd add on asylum. Listen, everyone here is a descendant of, of immigrants to our country, right? Pretty much everyone came here seeking a better life. Unfortunately, some people came here against their will, as we know, as slaves. But pretty much everyone else came here seeking a better life. My, one of my grandfathers came here as a boy in 1923 with his seven brothers and sisters. They went to Ellis Island, but he was detained, like these people that I just saw down in Mexico. His seven brothers and sisters were let in, but they detained him because he had one arm. He was a little boy, only had one arm. And we didn't let disabled people into the country back then. So he was going to get deported. He was in Staten Island in a detention facility, but he got an appeal. And the appeal was held in the Great Hall of Ellis Island. Hundreds of people waiting for the judge to come in to hear these appeals. And the judge comes in, and he's putting on his robe, and my grandfather sees from the back of the room that the judge only had one arm as well. And that's the only reason he got led into the country. So a little bit of shared humanity there changed. I wouldn't be here. So this is a personal issue to me. I think it's a matter of good public policy. I think it's a humane issue, and that's how I think about all those categories of immigration. 
Excellent qu- answer. On too long-winded, I know. I'm no, hey, we like long-winded. Uh, I want to touch upon your commitment to bipartisanship. Um, ACLU nonpartisan, so we always welcome bipartisanship on our issues. Um, but there are a number of civil rights issues that are unfortunately hyperpartisan, and reproductive rights is one of them. Right. And so, I, ha- your commitment to bipartisan. How do you make an issue like reproductive rights more bipartisan than it is? So listen, I'm pro-choice. And this is the most divisive issue in the country. But even on this issue, you can find some common ground. Not on the fundamental issue, like you either support a woman's reproductive freedom and the right to her body and to make these decisions, or at this point you don't. And listen, I I respect why people don't. I understand this issue, it's a complex issue. But even in this issue, you can find common ground on things like family planning, right? Everyone, Democrats and Republicans, support more family planning initiatives. So part of my approach to bipartisanship is, again, I don't think we should agree with each other on everything. We don't want to live in that world. But I almost think of it like a work day. Imagine getting up in the morning and going to work, and you spend the first half of your day working with people on stuff you have common ground on and getting it done. Progress, progress, getting stuff done, make, moving the world forward, helping people. Then you go to lunch and you come back, and in the afternoon you have a big debate of ideas. And you don't agree on it with each other or anything, but you try to change each other's mind. That's how it should be. So on stuff like women's reproductive freedom, that's not a bipartisan issue right now. That's a partisan issue. But family planning, that could be a bipartisan issue. Uh, hello, Mr. Delaney. How you doing, um, sir? I was, Call me John, please. Uh, oh, uh, hello, John. Um, I, was one, I was wondering what you would do as president, and if in general you support uh, the repealing of the Patriot Act, which was enacted shortly after 9-11 back in 2001. I do. Uh, And I also support closing of Guantanamo Bay. It's kind of a related question, so. Maybe another yes or no question, which is, do you support cannabis legalization? I do. This is, but this, you know, look at this, how I think about it, which is I think the state should be able to make their own decisions, but the federal government shouldn't be in the way of those decisions. And there's a whole bunch of stuff in the federal law that makes it hard for states to do what they want to do. So that's how I think about it. Other questions? I understand the appeal of uh, centrism and bipartisanship. Yes. But I wonder if there are times, for example, in 1932 when FDR took over, um, whether the centrist, he, he didn't take a centrist position. He no. took bold action because the times uh, required it. And I wonder if today, in terms of climate change, um, we just heard Jay Inslee a few weeks ago, and he was saying, he, well, we've got like 10 years to do something. And is a centrist position, are we going to get anything done going middle of the road there? Do we need something more extreme? So I, so I think centrism is often confused with not wanting to get bold things done. So let me give you an example, because climate's a really good example, because this Green New Deal just came out, and I actually think that's a bit of a step back, and I'll tell you why. So this has been a huge issue for me. I was given the Citizens Climate Lobby Legislator of the Year Award two years ago. If any of you are familiar with the Citizens Climate Lobby, it's probably, I think, the most successful climate change, citizens-based advocacy group in the country. It's like the ACLU for climate. And this has been a huge issue. I was against the XL pipeline before most people were against it. I introduced a big carbon tax bill, 
my first term in Congress. And last term, after working for four years, I introduced the first bipartisan or the only bipartisan carbon tax bill in the Congress. Right, to put a price on carbon. Columbia University did an independent analysis of it and said it'll reduce carbon emissions by 92% by 2040. Because the goal we have to get to is zero carbon by 2050. Right, that's the goal that all the scientists agree with. So my view on climate or global warming is it's not a linear problem. It's an exponential problem. Meaning if we wait five years to fix our infrastructure, that's stupid, but we're not gonna be in a bigger hole in five years than we are now. But if we wait five years to address climate, we're gonna be in a much bigger hole. So I believe as president, in my first year in office, I can pass a carbon tax bill. And it's the one that I've worked on and have Republican support for. It puts a price on carbon, which will materially reduce the utilization of carbon, and it takes 100% of the revenues from the tax and gives it back to the American people in a dividend. And that's how you can get it done. And doing that carbon tax bill now is so important to slow down climate change that I don't want to do anything to slow down progress. Once you put a carbon tax bill in, in place and you actually slow climate change down, then what I've called for is a five-fold increase to the Department of Energy research budget. We spend $6 billion right now, and it should be 30 because we need a moonshot approach to innovation, because we ultimately have to innovate ourselves out of the problem. We will not have zero carbon by 2050 unless we come up with new battery storage techniques, new transmission techniques, new conservation techniques, et cetera. We need basic science to crack the code. And that's the American way. That's what we've always done. Whenever we've had a big problem, we put our shoulder against it, we put our great minds against it, we put them in the labs and they solve the problem. That is the fundamental approach that I can take to climate change. And I believe I can get those things done and make a difference. What I don't like is taking something as big as climate change and saying we're going to link it to universal health care, which, by the way, I support. And then we're going to link it to something called universal basic income, which I actually don't think is the right thing for this country. Right? And we're going to link it to rebuilding every structure in the United States of America in the next 10 years, which is what the, New Deal, the Green New Deal calls for. Just to be clear, if every single human being in this country stopped doing what they're doing in work, the dean stopped doing what she does, if all the ACLU folks, if I stopped doing it, and we all were commissioned to rebuild all the structures in this country, we wouldn't be able to do it in 10 years. So I don't think the way to go on climate is to suddenly link it to a bunch of stuff that we know will not happen. So I believe my approach is a big approach. It's not, it's not, it's a bold idea. But what I do is I try to find a way to make it happen. Because I don't like talking about stuff, I like doing it. That's why I call myself a pragmatic idealist. Thank you. Another issue that I think is going to come up, so I want to start it here, is criminal justice reform. And one of the ways I want to start it is an issue that came up with Florida. Florida passed a recent, a great amendment to restore voting rights right. to formerly incarcerated individuals. So from a federal perspective, what's your perspective on restoring voting rights to we formerly incarcerated? We should absolutely do it. At what point? as soon as they serve their, their, their debt to society. I mean, the whole point of our criminal justice system, which has been broken, and I think is, has been, to some extent, immoral, right? One in three African-American men have been incarcerated in this country. We have 25% of the prisoners and 5% of the world population. Put it, you're not asking about that. Yeah. But the whole theory of the case here is you serve your debt to society, and then you are 
free to live your life. Get an education, get a job, vote, participate in society the same way everyone else does. So does that mean that as soon as you are released from prison versus completion of probation or parole? Well, if you, that's a good, I mean, I, that's a good question. And I think it depends, right? I mean, it depends how material the parole is. It depends what, you know, if you're house arrest, et cetera, right? I think when you finish your debt to society, right, if, if house arrest is part of that debt to society, then maybe it doesn't start till after that. Parole, I could see it starting sooner because of the nature of what parole is. So I think there is a little God or devil in the details there. Just so you know, here in New Hampshire, you can vote if you're on parole and probation. But I, I, ha I know there's a follow-up right here. Hi, John. Hey. Can, can you guys hear me? Yeah. All right, perfect. So my name is Pedro, and I'm not from these parts at all. So I've spent the last nine years living in New Hampshire. I live here now in Concord. But before then, I was living 18 years with my family in the South Bronx in New York City. Uh, and I want to say that for a good portion of our lives, we've always had to seek to another environment uh, to find a better opportunity. My mom is a Dominican immigrant uh, who flew to Puerto Rico for a better chance to find more income to send back to her money back to her family in Dominican Republic. And then in Puerto Rico is where she had me. Uh, in Puerto Rico, she also had to escape um, income, being impoverished, uh, to come to New York City and try to find a better opportunity. Uh, this, so everywhere that we have been going, there's always been tough time for us to find equal opportunity. And I wish I could say that we have equal opportunity with, with um, spread and distributed evenly throughout our brown and black folk, but we don't. So I wanted to know one of the reasons, for me, one of the reasons that is happening is because there is very vividly a school to prison pipeline. Yes. Uh, so I want to know if you were elected president, uh, how would you uh, stop uh, that process from happening? And also the collateral damages that happen from folks uh, within that community who end up going to prison and then going back uh, just in that form of recidivism. Right. So it's a great question, and I agree with the way you framed it, right? And I agree with the presumptions you made about it. So there's so many issues, right? So we just passed this First Choice Act, which I voted for, which was great, which starts at this issue. But I think obviously this, this notion of maximum sentencing has been a huge problem. Notion of cash bail has been a huge problem, right? Notion of people who are poor or people of color not being able to get the appropriate representation that they need is a huge problem. Right, all those need to address. Private prisons are a huge problem. Right, we shouldn't have, you know, our prison system run by companies that have an incentive for, to fill them up, and then go and lobby state legislators to make these laws tough so that more people get in prison because that's what happens. So I think you got to deal with all that stuff. And then, you know, the other thing that I've talked about is that we are in the process right now of finally coming to grips with how broken our criminal justice system has been. And we're going to start reforming it, which is good news. And we can talk about all the reforms we should do. But then when we're done reforming it, we're clearly going to look back and say, you know, a bunch of people got caught up in the system and their lives were ruined. Right. Because they should have had very short sentences and they had long sentences for nonviolent drug possessions. So what are we going to do for them? There clearly needs to be some form of restitution. Right. In terms of taking care of people who really had their lives ruined by the system. You know, that includes helping them get jobs and supporting them and all that kind of stuff. So that's how I think about that. Thank you. I think this gentleman has 
the mic, and then we'll go to you, sir. Thank you. Sir. How you doing? My name is Philip. I'm an ACLU voter, a formerly incarcerated individual in long-term recovery, an advocate for peer recovery support, and I manage a sober living home for men here in New Hampshire. One of the issues that I'm most passionate about is improving the recidivism rate in my community. According to the American Bar Association, there are 45,000 collateral consequences that negatively impact lives of millions of Americans living with a criminal record, preventing them from starting their lives over. Some examples, ineligibility for public funds, including welfare benefits and student loans, exclusions from public housing, and can be even more destructive of an individual's opportunities for work. So my question, would you enact fair chance hiring legislation to reduce barriers to reentry for formerly incarcerated individuals, including eliminating the box on job application forms that applicants must yes. check if they and have a the criminal box. record? Absolutely. I support that stuff. I mean, it's similar to the question, was it pa Pedro? Yeah. Similar to the question Pedro asked. Yeah. Okay. Can I just push back on Pedro's question, which you said that there are policies for ending mass incarceration, and I just want to give you a chance to really elaborate on what those are. Well, so if you think about incarceration, right, you, you got to think about all the steps of it, right? So there's policing issues. There's legalization of marijuana. There's minimum sentencing, right? There's cash bail, right? There's proper defense, you know, all of those things, and then you, the collateral stuff, public education, right? Have we invested in communities, right? What's the structure happening in some communities and the struggle that so many families are dealing with? So I, I, I kind of think of it as all those things in terms of layering in on each other lead to this pipeline of mass incarceration. As long as we're talking about the criminal justice yeah. system, um, let's take it to the end. Death penalty. Um, yeah, I'm What's against the position? death penalty. Okay. Good. Yeah, this is a yes or no one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easy yes or no questions. Other questions from the audience? What are your thoughts about military spending? So want to know my real thoughts about military spending, which is the, the discussion isn't around, shouldn't be around spending. The discussion should be around the scope of what we ask our military to do. And let me tell you what I mean by that. The way it works in Congress is we're at, always asked to approve defense spending budgets. And we rarely have a debate on actually the mission of our military. And that's backwards. Because obviously, if you tell the military to do a bunch of stuff, you got to pay for it. What we really need to talk about is what's the mission of the military. And let me give you an example. So there, there are three ways that the United States is engages in military activities around the world. The first way is by declaring war. That doesn't happen a lot. Well, we've done it, but we don't do it that often. The second is in an emergency, the president can respond for like 60 days or 90 days. You know, there's some authority that the president has to do that. But the third way is if Congress passes something called an authorization for military force. One month after 9-11, in response to that attack, right, and in response to the, the view, which I agreed with, that the Taliban in Afghanistan had done it, we passed an authorization for military force. And that document was open-ended. It had no time limit on it. It had no geographic scope on it. 
and it basically said the president can direct the military to fight al-Qaeda or any subsidiary of al-Qaeda. And now, 18 years later, we have spent trillions of dollars, literally, no one knows the exact number, but more than three, potentially as high as six trillion dollars. We have fought in three continents and in 14 countries. And there's no end in sight. I have called for a new authorization for military force. The Congress of the United States in front of the American people should debate the scope and mission of the military. What do we, the people, believe the mission of our military is right now? And it has a big mission, obviously. The scope of that AOMF should be no more than five years, and it should define the geographic footprint. Because we have to get back to having more of a discussion on what the scope is. Right, for example, I believe the threats to our military right now are increasingly technological. Right, well, we were fighting all these wars in the Middle East. China and Russia were observing us. And they said, well, we're not gonna fight them at that game. They got way too much horsepower there. We're gonna build very sophisticated technological weapons that can bring down our systems. And they actually advanced further than we did. And we gotta upgrade our military to be focused on those risks. So I think military spending is tied to the mission of the military. And we do everyone a disservice when we don't have a debate on the mission. And it's a politically hard thing to do, I get it. That's why Congress hasn't done it. But that's actually what I think we need to do. A few years, is this on? A few years ago, I went to a presentation by Justices O'Connor and Souter here in Concord about the importance of civics education yeah. and the general public's understanding of civics and being an informed electorate. So I I'm want to ask all of the candidates who I see this, but I want to ask what's your understanding of the powers and responsibilities of the branches of government, and how would you as president interact with those branches? Great question. Um, so obviously I think the Congress is the most powerful branch of government in the United States of America. I mean, I really do, if you read the Constitution, the Congress has the most power. So, you know, I believe the Congress of the United States has principal authority for not, they have authority on foreign policy, but they obviously have principal authority on domestic policy. The president is the commander in chief, and in many ways the job of the president actually flows pursuant to the Constitution based on that title that the president, which is one of the reasons the president has such authority over foreign policy. And then the judicial branch is obviously the branch that calls the balls and the strikes and makes sure the Congress and the president are doing their job and following the Constitution. So as president, I have a responsibility, or I will have a responsibility to appoint justices to the court. Right, and I will appoint very qualified justices, right, ones that have the intellectual right, and capability and experience to do the job and are measured and, and not particularly biased. Right, that's how I think about the job of a, of, of a good lifetime appointment, particularly in the judici judiciary branch. As it relates to the Congress, you know how am I gonna think about the Congress now having served in the Congress? I'm gonna think of the Congress as my client. If I wanna get all the stuff done I wanna do on infrastructure and digital privacy, I gotta get the Congress on board. So I'm gonna go back to the LBJ, Bill Clinton mode of dealing with the Congress. I'm gonna have a member of Congress over every morning for breakfast, because there's no better 30 minutes I could spend than getting to know them. There's a basketball court in the gym of the 
capital. I know because I've played on it. I'm going to go there once a quarter and play basketball with members of Congress. I'm going to try to develop real relationships. Because if I want to get stuff done, I'm going to need the Congress. But that's generally how I think. I mean, I believe strongly in the separation of powers. But I also believe the president's got to be working the Congress to get stuff done. And the judicial branch, you appoint the judges, they're on their own then. One of the things when you were talking about climate change earlier. I'm sure Justice Souter and O'Connor had a much better answer. <laughs> no, well, they were talking generally. And I, but, listen, um, we should have more civics and we should have more financial literacy in part of public education. Both of those things, by the way. The um, When you were talking about building up the Department of Energy to address climate change. The research. Right. The I DOE was thinking research of budget. the EPA, though, which in the federal branch, which so re, the executive branch, which seems to have been gutted. Yeah. And um, that's another concern. Cl clearly, I, you know, the executive branch is, is expanded from the commander in chief constitutional mandate, obviously. And I support like some people don't believe we should have a de department of energy. Some people don't believe we have a department of education. I obviously don't prescribe to that. I want to have a vibrant can cabinet that is full of very high quality people that represent the American people broadly from a diversity perspective and have a combination of skills and backgrounds in either Congress or management or understanding their industry. I think the head of the Department of Energy, for example, should be a scientist. Because I think if you read the mandate of the Department of Energy, which is keep tracking our nuclear stockpile, a lot of people don't realize that's the job, and also dealing with some of these issues, I think I want a scientist in that job. Now, what I want for some other position from the head of OMB, which is a budget job, I want someone from Congress. Because that job's about negotiating the budget with Congress, right? So I think I think about those roles depending upon who the person is. I think I'm I not know calling it. on people. I'll just no. get in trouble. <laughs> hey, John. Um, so um, I am an ACLU voter as well, um, and my name is Alex McEntee, and I have a question about um, the LGBT community. Great. I am a non-binary trans person, and uh, in New Hampshire, there is legislation to recognize non-binary identities on state birth records and state IDs. Would you support the legal recognition of a third gender marker federally? You know, I've never been asked that question. Awesome. I mean, uh, I don't see why I wouldn't, right? So, I mean, I would go to the community and ask what they want, mm -hmm. right? So I, you know, I I've, I've had 100% rating from HRC and all the relevant organizations. I've had a good relationship with the community. I've never actually been asked that question. So I, I don't see why I wouldn't, because it seems to me it's important to the community. And I support the Equality Act, right, which basically creates equality. So the Equality Act may actually allow, provide that, you know, allow that to happen. Um, yeah, I, uh, can you elaborate a little bit about your experience or, um where you've been, where you've been in the Congress on those kind of questions, um, LGBT questions, um, changing of um, birth certificates and licenses, um, that kind of thing. Also, I don't think we've ever voted in the Congress on a license question because it's a state issue, right? right? Or a birth certificate. Passports. Passports. I don't know if we've ever voted on. It. So I can't say how I voted. I, I mean, I may have voted on it. We vote on a lot of things. But again, I mean, I've been a strong supporter of LGBT equality and a, a member of the caucus. I've got 100% rating from, the, from HRC. And on the issues that we've had big fights over, 
you know, bans in the military, stuff like that. I mean, I could talk about all those stuff, but this issue specifically on the passports, I don't recall us ever voting on it. What about the bans in the military? Well, I'm against the bans in the military. Excellent. <laughs> Fully, completely <laughs> against the bans in the military. Okay. That would be one of the first things as I'm walking in the office, I'll roll back. The rollback of the rollback. Well, one of the things that's happening in um, in America is the there is a big discussion on trans kids and the the um, voting rights issue too. Of, of course, and yeah, um, being able to vote with your preferred name. Right. Um, not everybody is able to um, or you want to do surgery and those kind of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, some states are actually requiring that you have to have a surgery in order to change your birth certificate or change your license. No, I think you ought to be able to self-identify. Excellent. And if, Thank that's, you. And, and, and if that needs to be on the license to make it easier, I'm for that. Excellent. Thank you. But I've just never voted on it, I don't think. I wish I, you know, I thought what you were asking, so. Sounds good. I have one question that I want to make sure we get asked um, before the end of the event, which is what is your position on net neutrality? I'm for net neutrality. I, I believe in a free and open internet. Can you elaborate? As a businessman, I'm interested in your business perspective on the role of net neutrality in business. Well, I just think, listen, we have monopoly technology companies. And if we allow them to put up gates in terms of how they can, people can access the internet, right, it'll perpetuate their monopolies and it'll stifle innovation. I saw a bunch of hands. Hi. Um, this journey that you're on over the course of the next couple of years requires you to be masterful at two jobs that are related um, but really require a different focus. One is being the president, and you've talked a lot about that from the first 100 days to the detail that you provided on the issues and what you would do to be president. Yes. In order to be president, you have to become the president, right. which is another task. Can you talk a little bit about, sure. you know, My this strategy. field, yeah, the strategy with the field and what's going on with the party and how you want to approach it? So there's two things, really. I think I do have a unique message. I think I'm clearly running on a as a unifier, a problem solver, someone who's thinking about the future. I have a unique set of experiences, right? Blue collar kid, successful entrepreneur, and now public servant. I also believe Iowa and New Hampshire still matter, right? I really do. <laughs> That's the right answer here. No, I do. Look, and I, I've grown to appreciate the role more now that I've campaigned here, to be honest with you, because it's obvious to me that the American people need human beings to kick the tires. Because if we didn't have that, this is how we'd choose our president. Social media, where unfortunately half the American people get their information, and those are not journalistic enterprises. Those companies come to Washington to lobby not to be considered journalistic enterprises, because they know most of the stuff that's on there is completely unreliable or untrue. So that's a huge problem. And then cable news. And I got nothing against, listen, my oldest daughter is a journalist. I love the profession. I'm fully supportive of freedom of the press in every dimension. But I think clearly the cable networks, they tend to focus on things that rile people up because that sells. You know, they got a bit of a conflict there. So I really believe more than ever, which is why I want to debate the Congress, which is why I encourage people to have more open public debates. We need almost more town square debates. I believe more than ever that the role that Iowa and New Hampshire play in vetting us, figuring out what's in our head, which is what all these questions are about, and what's in my heart, which is hopefully you figuring out who I am, I think that's incredibly valuable. And I still think it's valuable. 
And I've campaigned, I've done 350 events already in these two states. Literally, 23, 24 trips to Iowa, 14 here. And I'm just gonna keep coming. And I'm gonna meet as many human beings as I possibly can. And I'm gonna advertise, I'm gonna send you holiday cards. Anyone get my holiday card? I'm gonna send you holiday cards? <laughs> that was my wife's idea. <laughs> and I'm gonna, tr I'm gonna do it the old fashioned way. And I think my message, which again, I don't think being a centrist is a dirty word. I think I might be the only one running. And I think it's what the American people look for. They may not be there yet, but I've always agreed with that Wayne Gretzky line, you skate to where the puck's going. I think the American people are gonna say, listen, I, Democrats are gonna care about two things. Number one, beating Trump. Like they're gonna care about that more than anything. And the way you beat Trump is easy. You build a coalition of progressives, moderates, independents, and disaffected Republicans. You build that coalition, you beat them easy. And the other thing, you keep that coalition together and you can get things done. Hi, Hi. I'm Gwyneth Rondo and I'm 17 and I'm currently a high school student. In 2020, I'll be able or eligible to vote. <coughs> How do you stand on the issues of making it harder for certain people, especially college-aged citizens, to vote? I think what they did here in New Hampshire is terrible. I think it's a poll tax. I think it's, it's ridiculous. In my state, in Maryland, they let you actually re register even before you, you're eligible so that you're eligible immediately, right? That's kind of what I like. So I think what they did here in New Hampshire is terrible. Just terrible. I mean, you have to have an intent to stay here. What the heck does that mean? Like you're gonna go off to college and you're a junior, right? in two years. I hope you don't have any intent to know what you're gonna do in four years, because you shouldn't, right? When you go to college, you should have an open mind and learn and be exposed and have all that great stuff that happens. You shouldn't know what you wanna do in four years, whether you wanna stay in one state or not. That's ridiculous. I do have to say, we have the lawyer here who filed a lawsuit today against that poll tax that you just talked about. So Henry, our staff attorney. Um, Georgetown lawyer. Yes. We're gonna embarrass him a little bit. What's that? In Columbia, too. You went to, so we got the same thing going. You're just like a lot younger than me. That's the only difference. <laughs> You're catching up on the hair a little bit. <laughs> so I'm going to go back to the military questions. My husband served 20 years. Thank you, sir. And right now, we're not taking care of our troops. They have serious mental health issues. Mm -hmm. They've got medical issues. We've got high rates of homelessness. Right. Within our military. Terrible. And it's one of the things that bothers me the most is, you know, we support our troops, but we don't. And the VA situation being, I mean, the computers there, they're still digging paperwork out of filing cabinets. Right. What do you see as a fix for that and... um the medical care that we, that my husband served 20 years to get, they're looking at taking that away. Right. What do you see as a fix to that? So I have a bit of a radical fix to that. So it's a, an issue I've done a lot of work on in general, because I, I have the privilege being from Maryland to represent a lot of veterans, because there's a lot of former servicemen and women who live in my district. And I would always do veterans workshops, and it was amazing. One of the great privileges of serving in the Congress is meeting all these veterans, service members, and all the kids that come to the Congress, actually. But my radical idea on this 
is built on something called the Veterans Choice Act, which gave you more optionality in terms of where you can get your health care from rather than the VA, if you could demonstrate that you were far away, et cetera. So I think we ought to take that to the next level. I think every veteran should get a card that gives them health care. And they can use that card anywhere they want. They can use it in the VA or they can use it anywhere else. And in about 10 years, we'll have a lot of data and we'll figure out how our veterans are actually using the healthcare system. Because the VA, which is a remarkable system, was built at a time when we didn't have the kind of healthcare infrastructure we have now. Right now we have extraordinary healthcare infrastructure in this country. It's one sixth of our economy. When the VA was created, it was about 5% of our economy. And I think what'll happen is we'd realize that our veterans will use a lot of points of care that are not VA, and they'll use VA increasingly for specialized care that is unique to veterans. Like I go to Walter Reed all the time to see veterans who have had terrible amputations, et cetera. Or there's other facilities, like I've gone to Martinsburg, West Virginia a lot, where they have a really good mental health facility. So I think the VA will, will continue to be a robust and vibrant healthcare organization, but over time it'll become more specialized for care, and veterans should be able to have access more broadly to the healthcare system. That's what I think we should do. We have time for two more questions. Are you sure? Yeah. Can you speak to um, freedom to own guns versus Common sense. Yeah, Gunner. great question. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, you did a beautiful job answering your question, right? Um, and by the way, I, I want to compliment you all on these very intelligent questions. So thank you. So I believe in the second. I support the Second Amendment, which obviously gives American citizens the right to bear arms. But I don't believe that's an unlimited right. And we all know that. There's been case law on that. The dean could cite plenty of cases in the ACLU lawyers, et cetera. <laughs> Universal background checks. 97% of the American people support them. It's hard to find something that 97% of the American people support, right? We're kind of a disagreeable bunch. But the reason we don't have it is because we have a broken political system where because of money and gerrymandering and voter suppression, we have a Congress that doesn't represent the American people. Because if it represented the American people, that bill would pass tomorrow. Because 97% of you support it. So I, I'm in favor of that. And I'm in favor of other things, limitations on certain very high-powered weapons, however that gets defined, which is always a debate. But I think that's permissible under the Constitution, and I, that's been proven. And I'm also supportive of other things, like we have something in our state called red flag laws. And red flag laws, and this may be a little disagreeable to the ACLU, but I, I think they, they work. They allow a family, just the family, not friends, not neighbors, the family, to go to court and say one of our family members has a serious mental illness, they have a firearm, and they've made threats to other people and themselves. And the court intervenes. And last year in Maryland, 145 firearms were removed from dangerous people. <coughs> I'd be interested in the ACL's opinion on these laws, by the way, because I know it. But, uh, though, but I'm in favor of those kind of things. Because I think they're common sense and they protect the American people, and they don't infringe on an individual's right to bear arms is guaranteed in the Second Amendment. And you know, universal background checks, a majority of NRA members support it. I'll ask, on the red flag legislation, I'll ask this, which is, what's your perspective on the due process for the person who the red flag, legis the red flag is taken out against? I mean, they, 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 ought to have the, they ought to have due process, right? They ought to have the right to appear the judge and make their case. So I, I support that. 
I mean, everyone should have due process. Last question. Great. I don't know if you guys have taken an opinion on the red flag laws. We have concerns with the version here. I knew you'd have, that's why I said I knew you all would have concerns. I've just seen it work really well in my state, you know? I mean, we, we're not always, like I said, we don't always agree on every single thing. And the language may be different. Yeah. I feel blessed if this is the last question. Um, campaign financing, you know, probably close to your heart. Yeah. Um, Citizens United, uh, the Terrible whole decision. mess. Um, what's your position on that, and well, how can we fix it? So, I would love for the Supreme Court to overturn Citizens United. Full stop. I'm not an optimist on that. I I would push for a, for a constitutional amendment to overturn that. Again, I would push for it. I'm not an optimist on that either. It's hard to get constant. I mean, I want the Equal Rights Amendment to pass, right? There's a whole bunch of things I'd like to have passed. But what I know we can do is pass a law in the Congress demanding transparency, which will significantly defang Citizens United. Because a lot of people give this money, don't want them, you to know who they are. So that I will absolutely do as president. And I will... You know, I would love for the court to overturn it, but I don't control the court, as we just talked about separation of powers. And I'm not particularly optimistic right now based on the composition of the court. And I would push for a constitutional amendment. But I think we can defang it, right? Because transparency, listen, when someone, I don't take any money from corporate PACs or any of that stuff, but I take money from individuals and I invest in my own campaign. When an individual gives me money, they got to say who they are, where they work, and how much they gave, and where they live, actually. So that's constitutional. Courts decided that, so it can be applied to Citizens United as well. We should know every single person who puts their money in a super PAC, right? So if we don't like them, we can say, why are you doing this? What are your interests? What are your ties? What are you getting out of this person? What did they vote on that put money in your pocket? We need to know that information. And I'm supportive of things that, you know, do match funding programs for small dollar donors, all that kind of stuff. But as I said, gerrymandering, too much money in politics and voter suppression has been the noxious mix that has bent the democracy away from the American people. Fortunately, I think there's some things happening. I mean, you know, we got to do some stuff on voting rights. Gerrymandering is starting to have a pretty bad track record in the courts and when it um, actually gets up for a referendum. So, you know, we can win these fights. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. That's all the time we have. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thank you. This Excellent. is great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.